0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 246th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most popular singer-songwriters of all time a woman who The Guardian in 2008 described as, quote, the biggest star country music has ever produced, close quote, and who has seamlessly crossed back and forth for more than 40 years between the country and Western genre and pop, while also starring in movies and TV programs and altogether charming multiple generations of Americans, the great Dolly Parton. Parton is best known for writing and singing songs such as Jolene, 9 to 5, and coat of many colors. Over the course of her career, she has had a total of 110 singles hit the charts, 25 single or album releases certified as gold, platinum, or multi-platinum, 26 songs top Billboard's country charts, and 42 albums crack its top 10, the former a record for a female artist and the latter a record for any artist, and number one records in three different decades. She has also accumulated 46 Grammy nominations, the second most of any female artist ever, behind only Beyoncé, and seven Grammy wins, not to mention two Oscar noms, one Emmy nom, and one Tony nom. And she was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1999, received the National Medal of Arts in 2005, was feted at the Kennedy Center Honors in 2006, and was presented with the Grammy for Lifetime Achievement in 2011. As the New York Times wrote way back in 1977, quote, Miss Pardon is blessed with a remarkably individual soprano, nasal and bluegrassy at full volume and innocently girlish at softer dynamic levels. Her sense of phrasing and pitch is impeccable, and above all, there is her radiant charm." Close quote. Now at 72, Pardon is still going strong. On November 30th, Dolly Records and RCA Nashville will release the soundtrack to Dumplin', a film starring Jennifer Aniston that will drop on Netflix on December 7th. And this soundtrack features a dozen tracks, six of which are new songs co-written with and produced by Linda Perry, the former lead singer and primary songwriter of the 90s rock band Four Non-Blondes. Several of those tunes are duets, featuring Pardon with the likes of Sia, Miranda Lambert, Macy Gray, and Mavis Staples. The standout, though, which Pardon and Netflix hope will land a Best Original Song Oscar nomination, is one called Girl in the Movies, on which Pardon's is the only voice. And, like almost everything she does, it's damn good. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, Pardon and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how her life, music, physical appearance, and worldview were shaped by her Appalachian roots. How an early start in music led to her first record deal in her teens and a big gig in Nashville at just 18. Why, after seven years of singing with Porter Wagner, a big figure in country music, She made the painful decision to go off on her own, and how that inspired her to write a song that Whitney Houston would later make famous, I Will Always Love You, and how she learned to broaden her appeal, branching beyond country into pop and beyond music into movies, en route to becoming one of America's most beloved showbiz personalities. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Alex Honnold, the incredible professional rock climber who is the subject of the massively acclaimed new National Geographic documentary, Free Solo, which chronicles his death-defying quest to become the first person ever to free solo, as in climb without ropes, Yosemite National Park's 3,000-foot El Capitan wall. Spoiler alert, he succeeded in what has been called the moon landing of free soloing and the most impressive athletic achievement of our lifetimes. Alex, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess you really are a walking spoiler alert these days. Yeah. You can't can't be seen before the, the screening of too many things, but I'm glad, very glad you're here. And for someone who hasn't yet seen the documentary, can you explain a little bit about how free soloing works and how you found your way to doing it?
1: Free soloing is pretty simple. It's basically just climbing without a rope, climbing by yourself without protection. But I think what is engaging about the documentary isn't just the climbing, it's more the backstory and the preparation True. and I mean, hearing from audiences is more the personal story of you know, how, how I sort of psychologically prepare. But just so someone understands, because we're not
0: talking about like, you know, kids in high school or something may go to a rock climbing wall in their town and go up a few feet. Like, how, what are the heights we well, well,
1: that is how I learned. That's how you I mean, learned, that was, yeah. Yeah, as a school kid going to the climbing gym. Um, I mean, so it is kind of a natural extension of that. Right. But yeah, I mean, El Capitan is a 3,000-foot wall. <laughs> so it's very, very large. Yes. And, and I'm, I mean, for people that don't even have the appropriate scale for that, I mean, that's twice as tall as the tallest buildings in the country. Yes. In the US.
0: People who hear about you and other free soloists doing things like that, think that you're either I think without having seen the documentary, because that gives some context. But I think the the reflexive assumption is that you're either crazy or you have a death wish. Yeah. Just for the record, are either of those things
1: true? No, neither. Neither is true. So it is an unusual
0: thing to do a activity that is going to put your life in jeopardy in a sense every time you do it. And yet, as the film shows, that doesn't seem to be a huge deterrent for you. And I guess there were scientific – one of the revelations in the film shows a CAT scan that may give some explanation of why that is. But do you stop and think about yourself, why you gravitate towards this?
1: In the film, there's an fMRI in my brain that shows – less activation in the the key center of my brain i think that the takeaway from that was actually just that through years of practice i sort of desensitized myself to certain levels of exposure Mm -hmm. which i think everybody sort of sees in their own life that with enough time and and practice you can overcome certain fears Mm -hmm. and so i don't know if it's necessarily me seeking out death-defying activities as much as me being comfortable with things that that may seem extremely scary but but through time just aren't anymore I mean, you talk about people, you know, taking your life into your hands and everything. I mean, there are tons of routine activities that people do every single day where you are literally putting your life in your hands. I mean, biking around in traffic or driving on the freeway. I mean, there are plenty of things that feel reflexive that people do every day that, yeah, they could potentially die doing it, but they're so good at it that it feels normal and easy.
0: So just to, you know, to that point, is there, you know, for again, 99.9% of people, what you do is terrifying. What do you find terrifying just out in
1: the world? Well, I mean, in, in my life, I've I found uh, public speaking to be completely terrifying. And I mean, I think there are a lot of studies that show that people find public speaking scarier than death in many cases. <laughs> and, and
0: you've overcome that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly when I was in school, the idea of speaking in front of a group was was horrifying. Mm-hmm. And now I'm extremely comfortable with it just after 20 years of practice. Yeah. And I, I think with climbing, it's basically the same thing. Can you pinpoint what you love most
0: about climbing generally and, and free soloing specifically?
1: Yeah. So climbing generally, I definitely just love the movement of climbing. I just love the actual physical act of climbing. And so as a little kid that manifest on buildings or trees or w- whatever was available. And then once I started rock climbing, you know, it's the same movement. It's the same feeling of, of climbing over something, yeah. you know, getting to the top of something like there's, there's a certain elemental joy in the movement. And then I think free soloing is a little bit more complex because they're higher consequences. It demands a little bit more of you. I mean, the, I think that free soloing is maybe a little bit I hate to say a search for mastery you know but but that might be might be the best way to say it but it sort of forces you to perform at a certain level and Mm -hmm. I think it's that feeling of performing at a high level that's that's really satisfying what else in life comes the closest to giving you the feeling that you get from free soloing I don't know that's an interesting question I mean I think that like I'm just saying doing something well yeah you know I mean and so I think that Anytime, the thing is, I'm I'm just not really good enough at many other things to actually experience that. Well, you know, because I think that it requires a certain expertise in in a field to be able to perform at a high enough level to really right. feel like you're doing what you do best. Right. You know, and so like I can go skiing and have a really good time zipping downhill, but I'm not a great skier, and so I never feel like I'm really doing it doing it well. Right. No, uh, but with climbing, you know, I've put over 20 years' effort into yeah. it, and so I I can definitely feel like a good climber while I do it. Well, and I think when you say effort, maybe
0: it's, it's worth sharing with people what some of that is, because it's not like you're simply a guy who likes doing this and happens to do it. Well, there is actually a very rigorous amount of training and prep that goes into this, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to even describe how many different aspects to the training, the preparation, yep. the the psychology of it. But I mean, you know, the short version is probably if you take something that you do routinely for over 20 years, and you do it five or six days a week and consistently push yourself like basically always try to make it a little bit harder a little bit different in some way yeah and so after 20 years that means your comfort zone and for whatever that activity is 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 quite broad yeah so you knew jimmy chin and chai vasarelli the
0: married filmmakers behind this film prior to it right how did you guys first cross paths
1: well so i've known jimmy for maybe 10 years through the north face team we're both athletes with the north face so we've been on expeditions together and, and traveled quite a bit together And then I've worked with him on commercial projects and just other climbing shoots. Just to give some perspective, like he's quite a good climber in his own right, right? Yeah, he's quite a good climber, but he's also just an extremely well-known and well-respected adventure cinematographer, photographer, you know, sort of like an adventurer. Yeah. So he's a good climber, but mostly he's just an amazing outdoorsman who's able to document it really well but so he, he was kind of the golden child of the outdoor industry before I was ever a professional climber mm-hmm. so I grew up looking at his images and, and respecting his work and then once we were on the same team together and traveling together so we got to, got to know each other personally but. how did he
0: broach the idea of making a film about you I mean did he know that you were considering the possibility of trying to do El Capitan or how did it all come about
1: yeah, so so Jimmy and Chai were sort of coming off the the success of their film Mario. Yes. Um, which I had film. seen and which I thought was amazing yes. and so so I, I respected their work and I knew that, that you know they made great films. Yep. And so they approached me about doing a feature with me and mm-hmm. I've heard them say that they were sort of just looking for a character profile. Though I was never really interested in a character profile cuz that <laughs> seems boring. <laughs> but I personally had been dreaming about freestyling all cap for many many years. And so it seemed like the obvious project that if you're going to make a feature film that's going to be on a big screen it has to be the, the biggest wall on it. But know? would you have done El Cap without them? Oh yeah, I mean I'd been wanting to do El Cap for many. In some ways, me agreeing to do the film project with them was a way for me to to actually start working on this project that I've been dreaming about for so long, mm-hmm. but sort of lacking that. You know, it seemed too big and too daunting, and I, and I just lacked that impetus to really start putting in the effort. Right. You know, I didn't necessarily know whether or not I would ever do it or whether or not it was even possible, but I at least needed some reason to start and find right. out if it was possible. And so the film was a perfect cover. You know, like, Absolutely. oh, this is a great reason to work on, on this dream project. Did you have any reservations, though,
0: about allowing cameras to chronicle you, either because they might impact your safety during the climbs? I think there were 15 cameras there. Or on the other side of things— you know, revealing things about your personal life. We see in the film that you live, at the beginning, you live very kind of in a form of, I would just say you were a private person. Yeah, Yeah, monastic. And now you're going to have somebody coming in and shooting inside the the van or trailer in which you were living. They're going to be shooting your relationship.
1: A lot of things that
0: I don't know if anybody would agree to without some thought.
1: Yeah, so honestly, I didn't totally know that that was all going to happen <laughs> because I just had no experience with real documentary filmmaking, so I didn't really know what that entails. I was right. like, oh, sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. Right. And then also, I hadn't even met my my current girlfriend when we started filming. Right. When they started filming with me, I was on a book tour, and I was just traveling and working, and I was like, yeah, I don't mind having some people hanging out with me and shooting while I work. Like, that's nice. Right. But, then, but then I met my girlfriend, who's great, but yes. then for the two years that we're living together in the van, there's also a camera crew, and yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't – I didn't exactly know that that's what I was getting into, but at so the how same would that time
0: work though, are they with you at all times or they come a few days a month or how would that work?
1: I mean, they pretty much focused on the 70 seasons. Like mm-hmm. when I was actually working on my project mm-hmm. that we also did trips together to Morocco and actually to China and a few other, and they stopped in at my home in Las Vegas and you know, they basically stopped in for all the key moments. Yes. I f- forget how many, I mean, I think it's like a hundred days of filming or something more. I mean, it's like, a, it's a lot of time together yes. for sure. <laughs> but in the film, I make two attempts on LCAP. Cap, and in between those, I spent maybe five months at my home in Vegas, basically training and getting yeah. fit and getting ready for my next attempt. Right. And I think the film crew stopped in for you know maybe a week of that. But you know, like when you see a training montage in Rocky or something, you're like, oh, it's five <laughs> minutes. He trains, he gets strong. Right. But that kind of thing takes like four months. Right. Like it's right. super. You know, it's a lot of hard work to actually train, and, and actually... it's not
0: like also an hour or two a day. It's a full time job for you, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly in the preparation to free-soling all-cap, I have a training log and everything. I was exercising about 35 hours a week, wow. so like training basically yeah. 35 hours a week, yeah. which, is, which is quite a bit of volume. Yeah. And that doesn't even count all the time spent trying to recover, you know, like right. doing body work or stretching and doing all the things that it takes to not break down when you're when you're working that much. One thing I wondered is,
0: had there not been film crews, how would you have been able to prove that you had actually completed
1: the free-soling of Lcap cap Oh, you wouldn't, I mean, the beauty of the climbing community is you wouldn't have to, you just tell your friends, they believe you, it's all fine. It's, um, I mean, there's so much
0: out there that have,
1: there have been a few, but historically, I mean, your, your word is important in climbing and I've certainly done enough things that have been well documented and people have seen me do a lot of things. And so, yeah, I mean, as people, if people respect your word, it's no problem. Mm -hmm. I actually, I love that about the climbing community that if you say you did something, people will take you at your word unless proven otherwise. Wow. I don't believe that you had any sort
0: of creative control over what the filmmakers did with the no, footage they captured, no, right? No, no, I never even saw it
1: until the final film. Well, so when you did finally see it, what was that like? Yeah, it was a lot. It was a <laughs> lot to take in. I mean, the climbing is amazing. I love the music. There, there are a lot of parts that I was like, this is so great. Right. And then all the the personal—I mean, basically just listening to yourself talk for an hour and a half is slightly, slightly painful.
0: <laughs> well, you're so in the zone when you're doing the climbs— do you even
1: remember all the things that you were doing, or did you have to see it on film to kind of be reminded? No, I, I remember a lot of it. I mean, mostly because I had practiced so much in order to climb it in that way. Mm-hmm. And so then seeing it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I've been practicing. Right. But, but I mean, it is really beautiful. And, and one of the things that I really like about the film is just that it, it really does convey the, the beauty of Yosemite, the inspiration behind it. I feel like it kind of helps. Because you know, people always assume that I'm crazy, You're like, oh, why would you do something like that? And I feel like to some extent, you can see the film and be like, well, I kind of get it. I mean, it is it is amazing, it is really beautiful. Yes. How has your girlfriend responded to the film? Because she, in a way, is
0: a, a separate breakout star from this. People really yeah, she's the like real her hero a lot. Of the film. Yeah. yeah,
1: no, she's amazing. I mean, for her, it's definitely a little bit harder. Or it has been. She's she's processed it with time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the film was never even her choice. I mean, she just met me and and we started dating baggage, and yeah. sort of and <laughs> sort of fell into this whole thing. And so I think that the fact that it was never her choice and never never her plan, uh, and and the fact that she had no control over any of it. You know, I have sort of a long history of working with Jimmy and I've known Chai. And so I really trusted them to to create a great film. Mm -hmm. But Sonny, my girlfriend, didn't even know them until until this whole thing happened. And uh, obviously, you know, now now we're all friends after three years of working together. But I think for Sonny, it's just a lot harder to hand your story over to somebody. Right. Just to restate a few
0: facts, you've now accomplished that your white whale of of like uh, climbing El Cap. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Your life goal. The doc about you has been so well-received. I think people are suggesting it may end up winning the Oscar for best documentary, but regardless, it's, it's a, a very well-received film. You have a personal situation now with your girlfriend that seems like as great as anything you've ever had from what the film suggests. So the point of saying all this is, are you done with the really high risk stuff or are you still feeling the need to seek what i guess both literally and figuratively would be like a higher high
1: yeah i mean i could be done honestly i don't totally know i think that throughout the last 10 years or so that i've been doing hard solos i mean there have been many years where i just haven't really soloed at all for a year or year and a half and then and then i'll get inspired by some kind of project and and seek it out i mean certainly right now while i'm touring with the film i'm not even thinking about big free solos because i'm just climbing in the climbing gym in different cities and and really enjoying enjoying that you know it's like nice to have a in some ways, it's kind of like getting back to my roots because I grew up climbing in the climbing mm-hmm. gym, and it's, like, pretty fun to feel yeah. like a good gym climber again. No, I mean, we'll just see, you know. If if I never did any other big, hard solos like that, I'm sure I will lead a rich, full life. Yes. You know, like, I'm not I'm not really stressed about it. What would you
0: tell a little kid who sees this film and comes up to you and says that he or she wants to grow up and be a free
1: soloist just like you? Well, I would say make sure you practice. <laughs> you know, be. I mean— Free soloing is sort of a, a self-selecting sort of activity. I mean, basically, if you're not prepared for it, you kind of can't do it because it is quite scary. I mean, you basically have to make, you know, many, many difficult moves. And so, you know, you can climb up a little bit and suddenly you're, you're 15 feet off the ground. You look down and if you're not really feeling it, you're like, oh, you know, maybe I should go back <laughs> down right now, which um, isn't easy either. Yeah, but it's a lot easier to go back down from 15 feet than to keep going for another 3,000, you know, and so it basically it's hard to get yourself into a position that's that's truly dangerous unless you're unless you really want to. Right. And so I would never encourage somebody to free solo, but I wouldn't necessarily discourage them either. I would just say make sure that you put in the appropriate time, you know, build up to it, prepare for it. I mean, it's like anything in life, like make sure you do it well.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for talking about it. And congrats on the phone. No, thank you very much. And now for my interview with Dolly Parton. Ms. Parton, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. We always begin with just a few basics for people who may not know. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
2: Well, I was born and raised in the great Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee at the foothills of the Smokies that we're so famous for, but I grew up in a big family, family of 12 children. All of my mom's people were very musical, so I get my music from my mom's family and my hard work from my dad's side.
0: Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I wanted to ask, how does it shape a person to be one of 12? I think the fourth of 12, right?
2: Well, yes, There's I have two brothers and sister older, eight kids younger. We didn't think about it at the time, yeah. but now that I'm older and I've had time to reflect, It really teaches you a lot of things. First of all, you have to learn how to share. Mm -hmm. That's definitely one of the first things you have to do. You have to learn how to tolerate. You have to learn how to have patience. So a lot of things that I've learned just growing up in a big family where you can't be the center of all of it, it really teaches you a lot of things. I had a good mother, very spiritual-based, and a good daddy that was disciplined just enough to keep us in line. We didn't want to cross too many lines with him, but we weren't (laughs) afraid of him, but just enough to make us walk the line, as Johnny Cash would say.
0: (laughs) And you've talked about maybe that that's also at the root of wanting a little bit more attention,
2: Well, it's true. I was kind of, like I said, kind of born somewhere in the place where nobody paid attention. Mom and Daddy loved us all. They didn't make any difference. But the only time we got paid any special attention is if we're sick or in trouble. So I wanted a lot of attention. I needed a lot of attention. So I started writing my songs and singing early on. And I noticed really early on. on, I learned to play guitar when I was about seven and eight. And I would write all these songs that I'd hear Mama and my aunts and all these stories people talk about all the sad stories things happening in the family and i'd make up these little songs and so i'd play them to mama and she was really fascinated with it so when people would come she'd say oh honey we get your guitar i want you to sing that little song they wrote so i started getting all this attention so then of course i started writing better singing more and i felt this kind of carved out a little place for myself that was kind of special.
0: Yes. And in terms of growing up, what was the music that was around you? A lot of it was church music? Yes.
2: My grandfather was a, a preacher, Pentecostal Preacher. He also was a great musician. He played piano, guitar, fiddle. So we were allowed to sing in church. So I grew up singing in church with a band. You know, anybody that wanted to play, they could get up and sing. It was all gospel songs, of course. Except now and then, my grandpa, if I wrote a special song, he'd ask me to sing it back in Mm -hmm. church. But the gospel music was there and the mountain music, you know, the old Americana music with the old uh, Carter family type songs and bluegrass. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a lot of that in the hold downs we had for pie suppers and all the barn dances and things like that we had. So we, I grew up mostly with the gospel, the country mountain music.
0: People bluegrass. may not know that, a lot of people do, but some may not know that you have been responsible for giving away 100 million books, which is incredible. (laughs) The reason for that, though, traces back also to your childhood, right?
2: Yes, it does. I'm very proud of the Imagination Library. I started that literacy program about 20-some years ago. My dad was still alive, and that was the main reason I did it. My dad couldn't read and write. He never had a chance to go to school because... Like most mountain people, they have to go to work in the fields to help feed the family, and people have huge families. So my dad never learned that, and he was kind of crippled by that and kind of embarrassed by it, but my dad was so smart, and so I loved my daddy so much. And so when I got this idea to start the Imagination Library, I thought, this is something I'm going to involve my dad in. I'm going to let him help me with that. So I thought that we would just have it in my home county, Sevier County, and if we was lucky, maybe a couple of counties over, but... We started the little program where we give books to children from the time they're born. They get a book once a month in the mailbox with their little name on it until they start school. And so it became such a popular little thing in our area that Phil Bredesen at that time, who was our governor, well, he thought it was a brilliant idea, so he took it and put it all over Tennessee. That's fantastic. Then the next thing you know, it went to Canada, now yeah. we're all over the world with it, and we just gave away 100 million books recently. That's incredible,
0: incredible. Yeah. There was one book in the in the pardon household as a kid, right?
2: Well, that was the Bible, right? That was. That
0: sounds like. <laughs> that was
2: the only book we had, cause we there were so many of us, we couldn't bring books home from school for, cause the kids would chew them up, pee on them, you know, get food <laughs> on them, whatever. And Daddy said I can't pay for that, right. so the the main book was there. So, but that was where we learned to live, though, out of Mama's Bible.
0: So, can you explain for people who this is gonna blow their mind? But you were on the radio by ten. You had a recording contract and were performing at the Grand Ole Opry by thirteen. How did this happen?
2: Well, now, I, I wasn't a big artist. First of all, <laughs> I started singing on a local radio and television when yeah. I was 10. There was a man that owned a chain of supermarkets. Mm-hmm. His name was Cass Walker. And so in Pennington Gap, Virginia, and in Tennessee, he had a radio and TV show. So I started singing there. But my first record was just one record on gold band records. My I had an uncle that was stationed in the military down there, and there was a recording studio across the the street. He was the brother of my Uncle Bill Owens. He used to take me around because he saw my talent early and he wanted to help me with that the only way I could go. So I cut my first record, you know, at 13. And and then I also had a, which had nothing to do with the Grand Ole Opry, I had a chance to go down. We would just walk the streets, knock on people's doors, trying to get somebody to hear me and all that. So one of these wonderful men, Jimmy C. Newman, who's still a member of the Grand Ole Opry, he let me have one of his spots, which was unheard of. Wow. He just kind of brought me out sing, because we were badgering, and my uncle was pretty <laughs> persuasive, and I was just wanting to be on the Grand Ole Opry, because I wanted Daddy and Mom and them to hear me back home.
0: And so. that was where, at some point at the Grand Ole Opry, I think Johnny Cash introduced you.
2: Yeah, know? well, that was, yeah, that was probably that night, because yeah. that was Jimmy C.'s spot. Yes. That was when he was supposed to come out to sing, right. and I went out, and he told Johnny to introduce me, so yeah.
0: <laughs> and then the first time you signed with a major label, Mercury, that was when you're 15? There was clearly interest brewing, but it sounds like you had made a decision that in 1964, when you turned 18 and graduated from high school, you were out of there, right?
2: I was. My Uncle Bill, I have to give him a lot of credit because he's. uh, I wouldn't have been allowed to go back and forth to Nashville had it not been for him, but we lived in our car. You know, I used to put on my makeup in the side side mirrors of the car or clean up in the bathroom of filling station, wash my hair and do all that. So Mama would pack us food, you know, when we'd leave. So that was kind of like our our rooms. But I was really I wanted to do it. I was hoping that that was going to be my life. And so it turned out that all those different trips back and forth and I knew the day I graduated that I'd go because I didn't want to leave till I was 18 because I didn't want daddy to send a posse after me. (laughs) If he had one of his kids out in the world, he would have, he would have worried.
0: And you had a pretty eventful first 48 hours, right? So you, you start out home. And you get on a bus, and can you take me through the next, like, day or two?
2: Well, a lot of people don't know this, but my first day in Nashville, I met my husband. (laughs) I've been married, like, well, we've been together 54 years now. That's incredible. And so I left two boyfriends back home. I had no intentions of getting married. (laughs) And I thought, well, I don't even even want a boyfriend. I want to just think about my music. But, of course, I'm boy crazy, I guess. (laughs) So I got to Nashville, took some dirty clothes that I had brought, and I was walking down at this little wishy-washy laundromat. And I had my clothes and the washer came outside and this good-looking man came by and we started talking. Two years later, we married.
0: <laughs> so can you explain, once you're now in Nashville, was your uncle living with you or what was, because he basically, you and he, I think, co-wrote a song that was done by somebody else, Bill Phillips, and became a hit, but you were not particularly credited for that, right?
2: Yeah, well, I was as a writer. My uncle at that time, see, my uncle played guitar to back up just a bit. There was another couple from East Tennessee, Carl and Pearl Butler. They became quite a splash in country music. They had Don't Let Me Cross Over, a real popular song. So we knew them from the Cas Walker show. So Bill, my uncle Bill, had gone on the road with them they were he was playing guitar with them so I was pretty much on my own down there so Bill and I used to ride a lot together when we were traveling back and forth in our car so put it off until tomorrow was our first song and so we went to get our award together you know we were in my song of the year to put it off till tomorrow you've hurt me enough today (laughs) with Bill Phillips and what you were referring to I had credit for a writer but I was singing the harmony, and I, at that time, was working with Fred Foster on Monument Records, and I kept saying, I need to sing country music. They kept trying to make me kind of a teeny bopper at that time, and I said, I'm just too country right now. (laughs) So anyway... When they heard the demo, when Bill Phillips on Decca Records, they said, who's that girl singing on that harmony? We want her to sing with Bill on it. And so it became a huge hit, and everybody was calling in the radio station, saying, who's the girl singing on that? Who's the girl? So then I got a chance to go to Fred Foster and say, see, (laughs) people want to hear me sing country. So that's kind of how that started that. And
0: was Dumb Blind the first big hit with you singing country, right? Yes. And even though you didn't write that particular song, unlike most of the songs that you've done, did you feel some ownership over that in the sense that you were also often maybe underestimated because of your appearance?
2: Yes, that song was written for me. Okay. Personally for me. Kurt Butman that was a friend, and he also, Fred Foster, directed him, you know, to write a song for me because I wanted, I was doing a session. So that song was written for me. You know, we talked about the different things. I had no part in the writing of it, except right. that I was involved in the what kind of, Song that we would, would like, and so that was my first chart record. It was, you know, I think it was in the top 10.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And so
2: I, that really kind of put me over the top. And actually, they're using it in this Dumpling soundtrack yes, yes. that I have out that we kind of <laughs> redone it. I did a chance to sing it with Miranda Lambert.
0: You've been very, throughout your career, and I've gone back and read articles from the beginning through now. You've been very funny about talking about the appearance that you cultivated from the beginning, just sort of. Everything was big in a way or or splashy or shiny. Maybe you can share. I guess it was really inspired by another memory from childhood, right?
2: Well, my look came from a very serious place. It really... I even wrote a song called Backwoods Barbie, and that's pretty much kind of who I am. But I just always felt so much more than how I look, because I'm not a natural beauty, but I always wanted to be pretty, and I always wanted to look like a movie star. I always wanted to be like something more than what I was, because I felt good inside. I felt like I had myself intact, but I just wanted to be more flamboyant. I just wanted it to match my personality, I guess. So it came from a very serious place of seeing... Uh, magazines and you know frederick's magazine girls on that i mean that's the look i thought i wanted and i look so artificial but i think it's always worked because people know i'm real
0: for sure and but wasn't there also i think didn't, oh the you, town trap ta- you're
2: talking about <laughs> the old lady that well yeah that's really because she she looked exactly like i wanted to look so who are we talking about you well t- i can't call her name but she was the right. lady in town that was the town tramp. But she wore her makeup and her, you know, her hair, yellow. She had peroxide hair and she wore high heel shoes and they had a little goldfish in them, little plastic goldfish when she'd walk, they'd kind of move around in there. And I thought she was the first thing I'd ever seen because she had <laughs> way too much makeup, way too much hair. Her clothes were way too tight. And I wanted to walk like her. I'd go home and I'd paint my lips with pokeberries and I'd paint my eyebrows with mom's kitchen matches and I'd, you know, and I'd make beauty marks and I just thought I thought I was the town tramp. I said, I mean, but that's kind of how I patterned my my look.
0: Interesting. Well, in 1967, I guess pretty soon after Dumb Blonde became this hit, you started working for Porter Wagner, who had the highest rated syndicated country TV show in the country at that point, right? And his singing sidekick had just left, and now they needed a replacement. And that ended up being you. But it was not a smooth transition right away, right? Because people— kind of missed the person before you, Norma Jean.
2: They did. Norma Jean was a very big artist. She had several number one songs, and she had been with Porter for a long time. And she married and moved back to Oklahoma City so Porter had called me I got a call because I was always sending songs to Porter and Norma Jean that I'd written so when I got a call that Porter wanted to see me at the office I thought it was maybe to record some of my songs so I go down and he I I take my guitar in thinking if he wants to hear some songs I'll have them so anyway he had told me that she was leaving and would I be interested in being part of the show, because he had seen me on local television. Dumb Blonde had been a hit, and I had another song called Something Fishy. So I had, you know, I was kind of the new girl on the scene, and everybody's saying, you ain't been looking into Dolly Parton. She's (laughs) like this and that. So anyway, he offered me the job, and I took it. But he was very supportive because people really missed her, because my voice is so different. You either like it or you don't. It's like (laughs) Willie Nelson and Patsy (laughs) Cline. It's either a sound you love or you don't like it. (laughs) As that's true of stylists, I think. Right, right. But I was, you know, my voice was so different from right, hers, right. and so there were people when I'd go out on stage at the start, they'd say, "Where's Norma Jean? Where's Norma <laughs> Jean?" It was like, ah!
0: But I guess the big thing was Wagner himself really believed in you, and and he did took you, in fact, to RCA to try to get you a solo contract, solo deal with them. How did that go?
2: Well, it went fine. It was kind of a heartache because I was working with Fred Foster and I had planned to stay with Fred. But Porter also was very bossy but it was his show and he knew what he was doing he was on rca so he took me and you know we got a contract in order to make our but
0: they resisted a little bit right
2: well that's porter's tale i don't know i don't know for sure about that but anyway (laughs) i know fred foster resisted quite a bit because he didn't want him to take his artist and i had a contract but he was nice enough to let me out of it but the point is porter did get me on rca and in order to make sure that i got the right start with them to prove to them that you know he he believed in me. We did our song, The Last Thing yes. on My Mind, which was our first big record. Then after that, my first album was Just Because I'm a Woman, which was the first women's lib song, in, yeah. so to speak. Because my mistakes are no worse than yours, just because I'm a woman. <laughs> right. And that song stayed on the charts in South Africa for like. I don't know. It's still in amazing. the top 100, it, yeah, I hear. It was in the top 10 for like 40 years or something, all of those women there. But anyway, so Porter did push and believe in what I was doing. We fought like cats and dogs because we were both very stubborn. I said I'd stay five years, and I wound up staying seven.
0: Well, and within those it, years, you just I took I, off. I, I mean, learned a
2: lot from yeah. Porter, but we, you know, when I started to grow, Porter didn't know I was a rider, Porter didn't know I was all that I was. You and think he, he and, maybe underestimated but he it. well yeah he also had always had girl singers in his group but he pretty much kind of controlled that well I'm not a person that can be controlled and I have my own mind and I have my own thoughts and mm-hmm. I have my own dreams and I just I didn't want to be part of a group forever I wanted to have my own group so we had a lot of friction a lot of problems but that was all
0: within those years though you were it was hit after hit after hit for you I think that was the period of Code of Many Colors right and mm-hmm. a lot of things and then you started to get sought after for tv programs of your own and i think it was through that that you first began working with kenny rogers who you've always been so associated with is that yeah, right i
2: love kenny yeah. it was after i was out on my own after mm-hmm. i'd left the porter mm-hmm. show i went to rca because he was saying that rca was going to drop me i thought i can't believe that so i flew to New York and got with RCA to see if they were going to drop me if I left Porter show and they said no we think you should be an artist of your own (laughs) so then I went to LA and found LA management I wanted to talk to big time management Mm -hmm. and so I thought well I'm going to have to move on and so I got producers and management big time and my first everybody was saying I was making a mistake leaving country and I just knew that I wanted to just kind of expand mm-hmm. and do more not mm-hmm. to leave country i'll always i always yeah. said i'll take that with me wherever i go but my first record was here you come again mm-hmm. and it was my first million seller it's my first record after i went out on my own so i thought thank you jesus yeah. praise the lord <laughs> you know i proved a point but you know everything was pretty smooth sailing after that
0: well so that year was 74 when all of this was going down and i want to just follow up on a few little things about that when you were leaving wagner What was the song that came about because of that?
2: Well, I Will Always Love You is the (laughs) song I wrote because Porter and I were really having some major fights. Mm -hmm. You know, he sued me for a million dollars, which I didn't have at that time. Mm -hmm. And I wound up paying it I mean, little by little as time went on. But I was more, I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about that. I needed my freedom. I needed my creative freedom. And I couldn't be, you know, just a girl singer in somebody's group. And so that was in, what, 74, Mm -hmm. I guess? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... We kept fighting, fighting. I'd go home every day crying or I'd be, you know, we'd be doing whatever. So I went home and I thought, well, what do you do the best? This man ain't going to never listen to you. Why don't you write a song about it? And so I wanted him to know that I loved him. I appreciated everything he had done, but that, you know, I was out of there. So anyway, (laughs) I wrote the song and I went back the next morning. and I said, Porter, you need to sit down. I got something to sing for you. And I did. I was loving his tears were just coming down. He's okay. You can go if I can produce that record. So anyway, so he did, and that's how that happened.
0: And then between leaving him and and really being a you know a solo artist, what was the traveling family band?
2: Well, that was my relatives. Yes. You know, we all pick and sing, and I had cousins and brothers and sisters. So I thought, well, I'll put together you know traveling. Family band. Now I love my family, but it is so hard to work with family <laughs> right, because right, right. I worried about all of them. Because I had raised pretty much most of the kids that was in my band, and I was like a mother. And then when they were out on the road and all the different people they were dating, they were out partying. I thought I'm gonna go crazy. Yeah. You know, after the show, if they're out partying, where are they? I've got to keep them like in check. But it was it was just really a strain. For me, emotionally, yeah. being so responsible for that. And musically, I needed to do some different things because we were kind of limited to a certain sound. Real good. Yeah. you know, We were real good harmonies and all that, but we could only go so far, and I needed a, a band at that time that could do more pop things, more different things. So I had to make one of the hardest decisions in my life you can't just let your family yeah. go without suffering death you know right. it's like you might as well just take knives and just stab yourself over and over and over but that was one of the hardest things I had to do but we had we just had some wonderful times we had our moments but trust me it's hard to work with
3: well family. it was
0: uh amazing though that what you did as soon as you went solo I think right away again all within 74 You had three number one hits on the Billboard country chart that year. Jolene, I Will Always Love You and Love is Like a Butterfly, plus I guess a fourth, which was a duet with Wagner, Please Don't Stop Loving Me. How did all of that change things now that you were taking off as a solo artist? It's like there was no turning back at that point.
2: No, I was free. Yeah. I was the girl I wanted to be. I was out there and I, I I was my own boss. It was my own success or my own failure. It was my responsibility, but I was free to work. I was free to create and I was free to be me and not have to answer to, you know, to other people. It's not, you know, like I said, I have total respect working with people, but I just one of those people I just have to be free. Right. To be creative.
0: Well, you're such a prolific songwriter. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, do you tend—I'm sure there are exceptions, but do you tend to write songs that are personal to you, or do you try to write songs that are going to be universally appealing? And I want to—maybe we can enter the answer through one specific song, which might be, I don't know, maybe your best-known song, could it be Jolene, where we're talking just to remind people who, who may need a reminder, a woman basically pleading for another woman to stay away from her man. Was something like that, do you need to have a kernel of truth from your own life? Or can you just imagine a lot of other people might be in that situation?
2: Well, a lot of my songs, if you want to really know about me, there's a lot of truth in all of my songs about me. But I am able to write songs for other people that I love and see going through heartache like sisters or friends going through things that they can't write down I feel their pain so much because I've grieved for them and with them and I am able to do that mm-hmm. but a big big part of my my things I can totally relate to mm-hmm.
0: and Jolene Jolene uh, was there was a early days yeah, my,
2: my husband's always you know he's always been just mine but he's right. a big flirt <laughs> and there was this beautiful girl at the bank I always tell this story and he was spending more time at the bank than we had money and so he's putting too <laughs> much interest if right. you'll pardon the expression in jolene at the bank, and i said you need to get your country ass home because <laughs> jolene ain't needing to get you a loan for a tractor nor a roller for right. your asphalt paving company <laughs> so it's like you get home and it'll be your ass and your fault. Right.
0: right oh that's great so as the 70s progressed a couple albums all i can do and i think here you come again 76 and 77 this is when you were really crossing over into more Sort of popular music, continuing to do that. I mean, it really worked, I guess, particularly with with Here You Come Again, the title track, and some others that were big hits. But was that idea of crossing over, which you referenced a little earlier, was that important to you, or was that somebody saying this would be the smart thing to do? And was it an idea that you embraced or resisted?
2: Crossing over... To me, I didn't even dwell on so much of it being a crossover. I just wanted to be able to do more universal. I wanted to be more universal. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into anything because I knew that all my life I would be country, and I am, and I take that proudly wherever I go. And there's an element of, you know, even if it's a pop song, I can, you know, there's a something about it, but I wanted to expand. I wanted to get in the movies. I wanted to, but the big world, I wanted the big stuff, Mm -hmm. the big berries, not just the little ones. I wanted, I wanted to have everything I could have. I wanted to see what all I could do, still do.
0: Yeah. Well, before I ask you about that first movie, which was quite a a success, I want to just ask you, because I think people will respect the fact that with that kind of ambition, you were still willing to... Pass up a major opportunity. How did it come to be that years before Whitney Houston covered, I will always love you, there was a chance that Elvis was going to do it, but you were the one that walked away from that because of a very kind of strong conviction. So when that could have furthered this idea of, you know, being even bigger in a way, you had the wherewithal to walk away.
2: Well... I have to be responsible for myself. I have to be responsible for my songs and my product, whatever it may be. And I had started my own publishing company. And to me, that's what I'm going to leave for my family, my nieces, nephews, and the kids on down the road. And so that was my number one copyright because I'd had a number one record on it myself. Mm -hmm. And he loved the song and he wanted to record it. it. Had nothing to do with Elvis. He loved it. Colonel Tom Parker, a smart manager, can't fault him. Anyway, he already had it. They'd call me saying they was recording it invited me down to the studio the night before Colonel Tom Collins said now you do know Elvis don't record anything unless we get half the publishing I said well you can't have half the publishing on I will always love you it's already a song it's my number one copyright he said well we just can't do it I cried all night I thought well you just can't do it so I thought well I'm not going to do that and so I didn't although years later i wrote a song called i dreamed about elvis and in it i had an elvis impersonator sing i'll always love you with me because in my sleep we were singing it and it's really a good song i'm gonna put it out someday that's great yeah but anyway so i just had to make that decision as a business minded woman because my publishing company and my songs were important so i i try to think like that i try not to let money yeah and just even prestige get in the in the way of what's the right thing to do.
0: Well, that worked out nicely in the end, because yeah, I'm sure. Yes, it did,
2: because then when, when Whitney did it, I yeah. made all that money, yeah, and yeah. I thought, well, I don't need Priscilla and.
0: The other Presley family, yeah, that, they're, they're doing, doing okay. okay. They, got, they got
2: plenty of money. They're um, not mine.
0: So this idea that you were then, when you started to transition into the movies, it started with 9 to 5 in 1980, then Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, 1982. You were kind of shot out of a cannon, but I think those movies were very different experiences personally for you, right? I mean, you were well-received. I think Golden Globe nominations for both. Obviously, the the song 9 to 5, which I think was part of the deal of you being in the movie, was a success. But just both came out within two or three years. What was that period like for you? And why go into the movies with those kind of projects?
2: Well, I had been offered the movies before. I wasn't quite ready because I knew... I hadn't even thought that much about being in the movies, although I wanted to make myself available to, for anything that came along that felt right to me. And then I had turned down several movies because I was pretty popular as a girl singer in country music at that time. You wouldn't want to share so what Jane, those
0: were, would
2: you? Yeah, there, there was one that Burt Reynolds did, a couple of things that yeah. Burt had done. He tried yeah. to get me in in movies before. Yep. And there was a few different things yep. that, you know, that I got offered that I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in. But Jane, when 9 to 5 came out, You know, I was so popular then as a a girl singer, and she thought, well, Dolly will get us the South. (laughs) So she came to me. You know, they told me this story, and I thought, well, you know, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda? If it's a success, you know, I can be part of that whole thing. If it's a failure, I can blame it on them. <laughs> Nobody will blame me because I've never been in it right? before. But anyhow, it turned out that it was a winning combination. and, and so, the deal
0: was though that you would do the cover? Well, now I, the
2: I, yes, my deal when I first went into Jane, I said, I will do it providing I can write the theme song.
0: And thank God and, that happened. And right? That that's,
2: wasn't part of. That was what I went in with. I said, "Well, yeah." After I read the script and right. said, "If I can write the theme song, then I will do the movie."
0: Uh, not many songs have been bigger hits than. No, that's to 5. been
2: one of my really big ones. And then I went right into the best little whorehouse in Texas with Bert, and I think I made a better whore than I did a secretary. <laughs>
0: But it was a, that was a uh, tough time in life, right?
2: It really was. That was a hard time for me at that time and a hard time for Bert because Bert was having a lot of health mm-hmm. issues and a lot of problems. He was getting over a heartache, and I was gaining weight, and I was having a lot of— You know, problems, health problems.
0: Health and emotional and all that. Yeah,
2: and all that. So that was kind of a hard one because nine to five was a joy. Yeah. That was a joy. And of course, the best of the whorehouse had been brought from a Broadway musical. And then you got all those people, so many directors got fired, so many. There was just so much going on with that. I didn't want to be part but you get kind of caught up in that and i'm very sensitive i don't like trouble no i no. don't like any kind of trouble i like to work happy i love to work free and that was one of the things me and porter used to argue and i thought i don't want to argue
0: this? i don't yeah.
2: i want to be happy in my work but anyhow that was very successful though yep, yep. and we got through it and it worked out okay. Well,
0: there were a lot of other successful movies over the years between then and now, including Steel Magnolia, as people will remember, and and many others. But I wanna bring it to the present because we've got this new movie on Netflix called Dumplin, which is, first of all, I think just coming ahead of another thing you're doing with Netflix as well, where they're gonna turn some of your songs into stories, which is interesting. But with Dumplin, this has some of your older songs, some of your newer songs that you've done with Linda Perry, which I wonder if you can just talk about how this all came together that you were involved.
2: Well, it came about, there was a book by Julie Murphy that was on the New York Times bestseller list several years ago. And I had all these people calling. so you know, there's a book out and they talk about you all the time in the book. The little character loves Dolly and loves your sayings and your songs and inspires her. And they said, you should take it and make it a movie. And I read the book. I loved it. I said, well, I couldn't do it. It's to be too self-serving. I don't want to do that. So I didn't think any more about it other than just to love the fact that I had inspired somebody to write a book mm-hmm. or, that, or that I was in it. And then next thing I know, I get a call from Jennifer Aniston. She has adapted the book for a screenplay, and she's also starring in it. So she was producing it, and they asked if they could use some of my original music, and I said, absolutely. Then they ask if I would write a theme song a new song for it. And I said, sure. They said, well, would you write it with Linda Perry who was, you know, from a group called Four Non Blondes years ago. Mm -hmm. And she's a great writer, a great producer. And they said, could she produce it? Would you write it with her, let her produce it? And I said, well, sure. You know, I was just going along for the ride. And then I met linda and man we just hit it right off i mean we're so different you'd think but we're so much alike musically we're like music mates you know instead of soul mates but our souls are connected in the music so we got together and we wrote five original things and so we watched the film and we just kind of based a lot of the themes of our songs on what we felt the attitude and the emotion of the movie was so anyhow then they started putting together different people to sing with me on it some of the bigger acts including
0: sia you guys have this here i am track which is i guess kind of traces back to code of many colors in a way yeah
2: that was back in an old album years ago and then there was a couple of things when i did with el king was uh, holding on to you it was another one from then but we wrote there's six original new things in the dumpling movie and i think one that we're promoting to is a song called girl in the movies Mm -hmm. and it kind of you know, I think it's one of the sweetest songs in there. But I'm really proud of this whole project, and I'm really, you know, I, I really enjoyed working with Linda. I'd never worked with a, with a female producer before.
0: Oh, that's really and interesting. And
2: the fact that we, you know, she was producing it, and we get along really good because we we're right. just very open and honest with each other. That's one of the things that we're very similar. We're both very upfront, right. you know, where you stand. But you know, I appreciate her and I respect her, and so I think that this is going to be a really time in my life that I'm going to always remember as one of the great times.
0: And the last thing is just, if you had not found this success with music, if you'd not ended up in Nashville or any of these things that we've been talking about, what do you think you'd be doing with your life right now?
2: <laughs> oh, I'd have had to been a beautician because yeah. I'd have had to have, you know, get a discount on all that hair and makeup <laughs> products and all. But you know, seriously, I used to think about that. I would just think I would either be a missionary or a beautician but i think i don't look much like a missionary do i <laughs> I don't think i'd scare well, somebody going into the far reaches of the world looking like this <laughs> so i'd have to i think i'll i would probably stick with the beautician
3: well we're lucky you know it tammy, worked out. tammy
2: Wynette yeah. was a beautician and she kept her license up even through her success Are you serious? she renewed her license just in case she said
0: <laughs> well we're lucky it worked out thank yeah. you so much for doing this all
2: right thank you